here we are. We finally at the end of Hebrews chapter 13. And we're going to finish our series in Hebrews today. You know, have you ever gone to the bathroom and realized there's not a lot of toilet paper there? And so you got to interrogate someone else in the house. Why did you do that to me? And they said, what? I felt like there was plenty there. Or maybe you have this big paper due for school and you go to print the final copy and turn it in the next day and you realize, I don't even have enough paper to print this project. Or maybe you're taking notes on a very insightful and wisdom-filled message, maybe today's, on the back of your handout, and you just there's not a lot of room to write in there. And you're writing in the margins and on the inside. Maybe you are sending your kids off to school or you're taking them to their first job interview, and as they get out of the car, you're kind of blasting all of these bullet points, things you want them to remember. Hey, relax. You got this. Be good. Pay attention. Make good choices. Let them know you can't work on Sunday because you got to be in church. And the dark closes, right? That's how I feel Hebrews chapter 13 is. The writer has been going into length and detail about so many things about Jesus. And he began to make this move towards application, as we saw last week, this application of running the race that God has set before us, to be active in telling others about Jesus, to keep him as our focus, to lay aside any distraction or hindrance or sin that's going to slow us down or to take us off course. We've seen that we need to see suffering as discipline, as God is on our side. He's our Heavenly Father. He's allowed us to endure suffering as a training and educating opportunity for us to trust and have some deeper faith in him. We've seen that we need to take our faith seriously, that it's really no joke. Accepting and following after Jesus is a big deal. People will either accept Jesus and have this eternal life with him, or they reject Jesus as their hope, and they'll spend eternity away from him. It's as though, though, the writer at this point realizes he's run out of paper. Or he's run out of time. He's, he, he's run out of something because he, he takes his final chapter and he jams in about 13 things that we need to do as a good Christian. And we're going to be zipping through these in one 35-minute message. And so in a way, we run out of time. We run out of paper or something. And these things are not small items to talk about. They're good topics that deserve messages on their own. And we've talked about some of these things in previous messages or even series in the past. And so I'm not going to be able to cover all the different angles and different topics and aspects of these in detail, but we're going to try to do our best to cover them diligently. Just like last week, this chapter is about applying what we've been learning about Jesus. Our knowledge of Jesus should compel us to do something in our life. And not in a legalistic way that we've got to do these things so that we all look the same, or we've got to do these things that God's got to be mad at us. We do these things because we're in a relationship with a holy and loving God. If you were to ask anyone, what does it take to be a good Christian? You'd probably come up with a pretty good list. I'm sure love would be on that list. Caring for those in need, not being judgmental. And all those things are good. In fact, any human being should be living up to those standards. But Christians should be the ones that's doing them the best. And even though that we're not perfect, you know that it's quite damaging when a Christian doesn't live up to the standard that everyone thinks that a Christian should live up to. It becomes an excuse for the world. Well, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to think about Jesus. I'm not going to read the Bible. 
a bunch of hypocrites. And so if you call yourself a Christian today, there is a higher level of standard that you and I are called to. And throughout this message, you're going to have your toes stepped on. And believe me, my toes have been stepped on. They've been broken. And so you're going to join me in that. I'm not doing this alone. And so let's look at it. Hebrews chapter 13. You can use the Bible and the chairs underneath you, in front of you. This is on page 1070. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. I'm going to stop right there. There it is, the word love. That didn't take very long, right? A good Christian should be filled with love, love for one another. Now, the word brotherly love here in the original Greek is this Philadelphia kind of love, a love for fellow believers, fellow Christians. It's, it's a family type of love. And we've talked about this last summer in our First Thessalonians series, how Christians need to love one another here within the family of God. We need to be doing that very well. You know, Christians who fight with other Christians, it just doesn't make Jesus look attractive at all. In fact, I don't want you to raise your hand, but how many of you admit that you have a dysfunctional family? <laughs> don't raise your hand. Well, why would anybody want to come to church and add a spiritual dysfunctional family to their life? No one. No one. And the writer is commending the early church you're doing good on some level here and continue in that brotherly love. It doesn't mean that they were perfect. We look at any book in the New Testament and we can easily see how the church was full of hypocrites back then. The church had its issues, its disagreements, and their excuse was that they were filled with a bunch of new believers who really didn't know how to live out this Christian life. But that's not our excuse. We've got the word of God and we're still human as well. What makes brotherly love work is the ability to see one another as family. We're family. And the best way that family works is to realize that it's got to work on our relationship if we're going to see each other on a regular basis. If I'm going to see you from week to week, we've got to work on this relationship. It's, it's like going to church is like going home and communicating with the people that you share a house with. If there's tension or barriers in that relationship, well, it's not the place that you want to be. You begin to disconnect, and maybe you're working longer hours at work, and you say, I just don't want to go home. Or you decide, I'm going to work on this relationship. And brotherly love, like family love, it involves communication, communication, communication. It's why we encourage you to connect with a life group or to form friendships at these men and women's events that we have here at church. It involves speaking and a lot of listening. It involves forgiveness. It involves confrontation at times. It involves seeking solutions for the sake of the relationship. It involves sharing resources. It's this give and take compromise that we have. None of us are going to get all that we want, but we make this compromise for the sake of the family as a whole. It involves protecting and defending if someone was talking nasty about a family member of yours, you'd speak up and defend them. And I think if someone is speaking disgruntly about the church at large or even a member within this church, we ought to be quick to defend and to protect them. The list goes on and on of what a family love would look like. And I think we do 
pretty good with this here at Hope Chapel. And so my encouragement would be the same thing. Just continue. We're not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect church. There's always room for improvement. But let's continue to work on loving one another here within the family of God. All right, verses 2 and 3. Let's continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality. For by doing this, some have welcomed angels as guests without knowing it. Remember those in prison as though you were in prison with them, and the mistreated as though you yourselves were suffering bodily. This has to do with strangers. In verse 1, it was about treating believers as family, and here we're treating strangers like friends. Hospitality is becoming a welcoming place. We're, we're, we're letting someone into our home. We're providing them refreshments, a meal, sometimes allowing them a place to, to stay and to rest and to sleep. It's being friendly with those that we really never met before. Let's get to the elephant in the room about the angels showing up. What is that all about? Is the Bible saying that, hey, you need to be, be hospitable because you never know what angel will be, could be coming and testing to see if you're really hospitable or not? It's like a secret shopper, so to speak. That's not what this is about. It's not those feel-good stories like you're in the grocery store and you let someone cut in line in front of you and then you get to, to pay for your groceries and your groceries are paid for and you, and you run out to say thank you and they're gone. Whoa, it must have been an angel. It's not like that at all. The writer is referring to a few well-known instances in the Old Testament. There's this big one in Genesis chapter 18. I encourage you to write that down. You can check the story out later. Abraham welcomes in three men. One is God himself, and there's two angels, maybe Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That makes sense. Abraham recognized that they were something special because he falls to the ground, and he says, my lords. Well, the Lord had came to talk to him about destroying Sodom because of the sin in that city. And as Abraham and the Lord was chatting, the two angels went to Lot, Abraham's nephew, to rescue him from that city. And when Lot saw them, he also fell down and cried out, My lords, invited them into his house because he knew the men of that city would not be welcoming them in very kindly. There's two other occurrences in the Old Testament, and they're found in the book of Judges. When the nation of Israel, they weren't ruled by kings yet. There was these, these prophets, uh, priests, judges, and there the angel of the Lord, some believe that it was Jesus himself, he emerged as a man to call a specific person to do something mighty for God at a time when he was pronouncing judgment or transitioning the nation of Israel. In the Bible, we see the word angel as messenger, just a messenger. Sometimes it refers to angels in the celestial sense, and sometimes it just refers to someone who's communicating a message. It could be a human messenger. The point is that when you welcome in strangers, you could be inviting someone who is a person of God. They could already be a part of the spiritual family. We just don't know. Maybe they came from a distant land like Lemonster or a foreign country. We don't know. And so we just need to be open and welcoming them in. The emphasis here is not on the angel. It's our responsibility to be hospitable. Abraham was well known because he opened up his home. He made his big meal, catered to them, provided a place for them to stay. Whether or not he fully understood who they were. The point is that you and I are called to be welcoming and to loving 
one another when people come into our house, whether that's this house, the church, or your own personal home. Now, it's not saying that we need to make our homes into homeless shelters and not be smart about our resources, but that's typically not our struggle. I'm not sure if I should turn my house into a homeless shelter. Our struggle is that we often like to keep to ourselves. We like to stay within our own circles, our own little bubbles. We often don't open ourselves up and invite people into our home who we've just met. In fact, just think about it. Who was that you talked to on your way in today? Who is it that you most likely will gravitate after the service? Is it a stranger, someone you don't know? Or is it a friend and someone you already know is in the family of God? It's something to consider. we got to do our part, each and every one of us as a good Christian, to help strangers feel like friends. Verse 3 goes a little step further and calls us to go out to strangers, especially to those that are in need. There's no reason just to sit back at home and, hey, if you need, come to us. It speaks volumes to how we view church. Is church a building, a place we go to, or is it we who are Christians? We're the church. And so it affects how we view church outreach, that we're out, we're engaging in our community, we're helping those in need, rather than just somehow expecting them to come to us first. And if we saw strangers as friends, and if we saw uh, friends as family, then what they are going through would affect us. If it was one of your friends that was in need, that would affect about what you would do and how you would think about that. And this, of course, calls back to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25. I encourage you to write that down and check it out later as well. Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 46. Jesus says at the end of times, during judgment, he's going to separate those that are his from those that are not his. Those that are his are the ones when he came to them and he was hungry, they gave him something to eat. When he was thirsty, they gave him some water. When he didn't have a place to stay and he didn't have clothes, they welcomed him in, they gave him clothes to wear. Now those who didn't do those things are going to cry out saying, oh, Jesus, whoa, when did that ever happen? I don't remember when you came along and you were hungry and you were in need and we didn't give you something to eat. I don't remember when you came by and you were thirsty and we said, I'm not giving you anything to drink. I don't remember when you came by and you didn't have a place to stay and you didn't have any clothes and we didn't help you out. I don't remember that happened. And Jesus says, whether you did or didn't do those things to each and every one of these people on here on earth, then you did or didn't do it to me. And so not only are we viewing strangers as friends, we're viewing them as Jesus. If it was Jesus, what would we do? Would we help them? That's what a good Christian would do, to help those in need and to welcome strangers in as friends. All right, we got to move along here, right? Verse 4, marriage is to be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterers. Marriage should be viewed as something precious, something to be honored, something of value. It should be compared to these precious jewels and stones. It's something that you hold on to, you protect it, you show off its beauty, you treat it as special. 
And Hebrews isn't just talking to married people. He's talking to all people. Everyone should view marriage this way. If you're not married, you should look at marriage and say, wow, that's something special. That's something that I want. We need to take it seriously. It's something that God has created between a man and a woman. And although there's more to marriage than sex, can you believe it? Although there's more that happens in the marriage bedroom than sex, the writer's context here is centered on sex. Because he talks about God was going to judge both the married people who have sex outside of marriage, the adulterers, and those who aren't married who are having sex outside of marriage, the immoral. The Greek word there is pornos, where we get the word pornography. We're, we're giving ourselves over sexually to anybody and everyone. Your sexuality is an important part of your spirituality. And Pastor Neil spoke a great series a couple years ago called Sex by the Good Book. I really encourage you to listen to that series. It's on our website, hopechapelsterling.org. Basically, God created sex as an intimate bond between a man and a woman. It says in the beginning of Genesis that the two will become one. It's through sex that God has designed two people to connect deeply with one another. These things happen. There's these emotions, these, the mental, the, the physical, the, the chemical, these scientific things, the spirituality, the, the, these things that happen as two people are engaged in sex in such a way that when the two are disconnected relationally, it's painful. Right? Ask anyone who's ever been divorced. Even when it was out of necessity or they're justified to do so, it has brought a lot of pain. A lot of pain that can last for a long, long time. So we treat our sexuality special. We protect it. We watch over it. We give it attention. We just don't give it away to anything and anyone. And if you're married, we keep that bond sacred. We work as hard as we can to keep it undefiled. For a little practical application, that word undefiled means clean. And so I think, in a way, he's saying, keep your bedroom clean and take a shower. <laughs> Sometimes you stink, and the mess you leave all over the bed and the bedroom floor, well, that's not creating a very good mood. All right? So there's a little bonus for you. <laughs> Verses 5 and 6. Made all the students squeamish for a little while. <laughs> Verse 5. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or abandon you. Therefore, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Here we go. We're talking about sex and money in the same service. <laughs> That's just like the church, right? That's all you guys talk about. Well, if you're just visiting for us for the first time, you've never heard any other message. That's not what we talk about all the time. You can go back and listen to other messages. But when the Bible talks about them, we are going to talk about it. Jesus, he talks about money often. He uses business illustrations over and over because he understands that where our money and our time are, that's where our heart and our passions are. And he wants our heart. There's this balance for us where we, we need to work hard because God has designed work. He's told us to occupy our days with work. We're to work six days and then enjoy the seventh day as this day of pause and to praise. We've got to enjoy work and to work hard. And he says there's nothing wrong with money and possessions, but there is a problem if we're consumed with money as though work is our God. It becomes a problem if we seek after it 
as our source of hope and our provision in life rather than looking, God, you are my helper. You are the one who has provided for me. It's in those moments of having very little and in those moments of having a lot where we can see what our God is. And we've seen it both ways. You've seen it perhaps in your life when money is tight, when things happen in life, when the bills begin to pile up. We look for another job and maybe that second or third job just happens on a Sunday morning because that's the only day we got left. And so we miss out on church. We know we need to be in church, but we need the money. And of course, I'm not saying that working on Sundays is bad. Some can't avoid it. I've been there before. But that's usually not our struggle. Our struggle in those moments is whether or not we really trust God. Do we lean into him or do we begin to pull away from even the spiritual family that God's designed to help one another? When the rubber meets the road, we often trust in ourselves. We trust in our abilities. I just got to pull up my bootstraps and get to work and I can get this thing done. On the flip side, we know people as they climb the corporate ladder, we just see them less and less. And again, Sunday attendance is not the spiritual marker for godliness, but it is a spiritual marker for godliness. Because we understand that we're not meant to do life alone. We lean into our family to help us. And we see God, God, you're the helper in my life. I know that you love me. I know that you have a plan. And so I'm going to lean into you. We give him proper attention and praise, and we do it corporately together. Verse 7. Remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives. Imitate their faith. Here he's talking about pastors and spiritual leaders within the church, those who have been teaching and preaching God's word. We're to consider and look at their lives, those who have been doing it for quite a while, and look at the outcome of their godly living, which is why it's so important to have older believers teaching. We need older believers teaching in kids' camp. We need older believers teaching our students. We need older believers teaching our young adults. And teaching is not just setting up a classroom and communicating some material. Teaching is leading by example, showing them how to live a Christian life. We need to surround ourselves with those who have lived this life so they can help us navigate the ins and outs. It doesn't really mean that we need to look to our pastor and our spiritual believers and monitor them like 24-7 and just see where they mess up all the time. But we are looking for them to how to live out this Christian life. Because they're the ones that can testify to us this value of brotherly love. Hey, you got to lean into your spiritual family. You're going to need them. Here's how they helped me. We're helping out strangers in need. Or they're the ones testifying that you've got to be in your marriage for the long run. I know it's hard. I know it's tough. But you can do it. Don't be absorbed with money. Trust God during those hard times because we've all been there. And we need someone to help guide us. We're not putting them on pedestals and expecting them to be like Jesus. Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Imitate me as I imitate Christ. So we don't follow the leadership so that if they fall, oh, I guess I fall too. 
we're, we're saying imitate them when they look like Jesus. When they look like Jesus, look like them. And, and when they're not looking like Jesus, don't look to them. Just keep looking at Jesus. And that's what a good Christian do, does. We, we surround ourselves with godly leadership. Verses 8 through 14. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations. Since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have the right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burnt outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. We're not going to spend a lot of time on here because we have looked at in many places in our study in Hebrews how Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's fulfilled that full requirement of a blood sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. And there's nothing that we need to add or take away from that. No one can have a relationship with Jesus Christ except through Jesus Christ and his offering of blood on the cross. And we can't follow any other teaching beyond that. In the history of the church, there's been a lot of false teachers and teachings. The New Testament writes about several of those. Some emerged quickly as people were becoming believers and they're just trying to sort out what these things mean. Some merged as Jewish leaders. They were just having a hard time giving up their old practice of, of doing religion. Some emerged as people were honestly just looking for a way to control and manipulate people and fill up their pockets, putting fear into people, saying, well, if you don't do this or that or abstain from this and that, then you're not a good Christian. Examples in the New Testament are that they believed men need to continue to be circumcised and that no good Christian would ever buy meat at a market that was originally offered as a religious sacrifice. In more recent church history, this looks like legalism or fundamentalism within Christianity, where it seemed that Christianity was more concerned with what you are wearing and what's in your refrigerator than what's in your heart. Right? No good Christian would ever drink wine or alcohol. Although Jesus made a big batch of really good tasting wine one time at a party. Now certainly a Christian should not be controlled by any substance except the Holy Spirit. But abstinence from alcohol is not a fruit of the Spirit. There's a lot of things that are not good for us as Christians. And our lives should definitely be different than those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. So let's be careful on that. But let's not say that there's Jesus plus this equals salvation. The other side of adding to Jesus is taking away from Jesus. There's a lot of people who would like to chop up the scriptures and, and only keep the parts that line up with their view of how they think God should be. They love the love and grace of God but they're not sure about this holiness and sin and being saved only through Jesus. Jesus is just a good example of being a nice person. The relationship with God is not obtained through a sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. 
Jesus dying on the cross was just his ultimate example of laying his life down for somebody else. We, we just need to love one another. That's what salvation is. And both of those are lies. They're lies. Satan has been deceiving people from the very beginning when he deceived Eve in the garden. He was able to deceive her because he was able to twist what God had said. See, God said, you can eat from any tree in the Garden of Eden except for one, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then Satan comes along very cleverly, not looking like danger, goes to Eve and said, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve said, oh, no, God said we can eat from any tree except for that one, and if we touch it, we'll die. Well, right then, Eve misquoted God and added to his command. Satan was able to put some doubt and to twist God's truth. And Satan says, yeah, see, God's not fully honest with you about his commands. He's not even clear about what he wants you to do. The truth is that God just doesn't want you to be like him. And so he's trying to keep you down and keep himself elevated. If you took a hold of that, you'd be just like God. Go for it. It's good. Listen, Satan isn't going to cause mayhem in your life as much as he wants your life to look good without God. Satan is not trying to cause mayhem in your life as much as he's trying to make your life look good without God. He wants to keep as many people away from eternity as he can, can, can and he's very clever about it. We see this in the American culture. If a person's life is good and successful, why would they ever need God? Why would they ever go to church? Because they don't understand that there's more to life than what's here on earth. So a good Christian keeps that in mind. They don't add or take away from what Jesus did on the cross. Verse 15. Therefore, through him... Let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. A sacrifice of praise. I think you really need to do a series on singing here in the church. I know some of you don't like singing in front of people. You're afraid of what they might hear. And certainly there are days where we come in, you know, and we're just beat up on life and we just want to just soak in the worship and the peace that we get from being here. But most of the time, that's not our struggle. Most of the time, our, our struggle is that we're not a place that is filled with so much joy and reflection on how good God is that it's just overflowing through our lips as a sacrifice of praise. And certainly we learn some new songs, and that's not what I'm talking about, but a lot of us just don't sing because we just don't want to. And we're, as a good Christian, called to give a sacrifice of praise with our lips. In many occasions in the Bible and in church history, anytime there was a move of God, we saw the people singing and praising God before it even happened, and especially after it happened. 
Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. Could you write that down? It'll be up on the screen. Colossians 3, 16. Let the message of Christ dwell richly among you as you teach and admonish or encourage one another with all wisdom through, highlight and under that word, through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in our hearts. Not only should we be singing and offering a praise to God for what he's done in our life, but as we sing, we're encouraging one another around us. Listen, when I see people singing and I know some of what's going on in their life, and I'm thinking, how can they be singing such joy in their heart when I know what they're going through? It's because I know that they know that God is good and God is faithful and they can trust him no matter what. And so when you're singing, you're not all just offering God a sacrifice of praise. You're encouraging the next person next to you says, hey, your life may really be stinky, but hey, it's all right. We got God as our helper. And we confess his name with our mouth. We're going to give you an opportunity to encourage one another when we end this message and we close out our service with a song. It's an opportunity for you to encourage your neighbor by opening up your lips. In a week and a half, we're going to have a night of prayer and worship where we just dedicate an hour and a half for you to pray and to worship and to lift up a sacrifice of praise. I encourage you to set aside a time for that night. All right, we're running out of paper. We're running out of time. Let's jump in. Verse 16. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. So we share our resources. We help one another. We give, not grudgingly, but out of a joyful heart, we give. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, since they are keeping watch over you, your souls, as though who will give an account, so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable to you. These are talking about your leaders, your government leaders, your mayors, your state representatives, the senators, the presidents. Let's just be honest, their job is not easy. And we want to encourage them to do a good job out of a joyful heart not out of grief and anger. We don't want them writing laws because they're mad. That doesn't go well for them. So we pray for our leaders and we encourage them. Verses 18 and 19. Pray for us that we are convinced that we have a clear conscience, wanting to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. And I urge you all the more to pray that I may be restored to you very soon. We're praying for one another. A good Christian prays for one another. We pray for one another for personal reasons. We pray for one another's health. Wow, I, they're sick. They're going through this. I want to pray for them. I, I pray that their health would be restored. I pray for them through this surgery. But we're also praying for them so that they would be able to communicate the good news of Jesus. We're not just praying that they would be healed so that they can enjoy life here on earth. We're praying that they would be healed so that they can communicate the good news of Jesus with somebody. That's our purpose in life anyways. So how are we praying for one another? Praying for personal reasons, yes, but also praying that the mission of God would go forth. Verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of 
of the everlasting covenant equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God has given us the tools and the resources to do what he's calling us to do. We don't have to try to figure this out on our own. God has prepared you and is preparing you for what he's already prepared for you to do. We just have to lean into him as a good Christian. We just lean into the tools that God has already equipped us to do this. Verse 22 to the end of the book. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to receive this message of exhortation, of encouragement. For I have written to you briefly. That's a long, brief letter. Be aware that your brother Timothy has been released. If he comes soon enough, he will be with me when I see you. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who are from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Receive these messages as encouragement. The words in this book is not to tear you down, to, to show you how you mess up all the time. The words in this book is to be an encouragement, that you can do this, that you can lean and trust in God. So he says, goodbye for now. We love you. We hope to see you soon. And that's what we do as good Christians. We love you. We hope to see you soon. We hope to see you next week. So let me pray.